Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The federal improper payment rate ticked up in fiscal 2023. The Office of Management and Budget says the slight increase to 5.43% was mainly due to documentation problems. Deidre Harrison is the deputy controller in the Office of Management and Budget. She tells executive editor Jason Miller about how the Office of Federal Financial Management plans to continue to reduce the improper payment rate in 2024 and beyond. We are laser, laser focused on continuing to ensure the effective stewardship of taxpayer funds. As I'm sure you know, there have been a lot of new pieces of legislation that have passed in the last couple of years. And with that, the creation of a large number of new programs, as well as this expansion of other programs, in order to really ensure that effective stewardship, we were required to kind of rethink how we were going to approach implementation. And with that oversight, the really short version is that our new approach is all about bringing in our oversight partners at the front end. Uh, We need to make sure that this year in particular, we are institutionalizing all of those processes that we've been putting in place the last couple of years. We can get into more details, but probably one of the most exciting new things we are doing are these meetings that we call joint review meetings, where we are bringing together agency program teams, their leadership, their IGs, their inspector generals. We are bringing together the White House and uh, our ONB partners to really think about oversight and performance on the front end together. We are also making sure that agencies have the tools they need to get their jobs done, that they are sharing best practices, they are identifying tools that work, and they are sharing those tools with each other. We don't want agencies having to solve these problems on their own. And in order to do that, we have stood up a new payment integrity and fraud symposium where we bring together program staff and leadership to collaborate and learn in real time. So this isn't just about being talked to, it's about problem solving together at the same time. So that's number one. Number two, we've been really, really hard at work here at ONB rewriting what we call our uniform grants guidance. Uh, There is a very long document that articulates all of the administrative requirements for federal financial assistance and we have rewritten it from top to bottom. We went out to the public a couple of months ago asking for comments about areas we could look at. We got a lot of comments. There were a lot of really, really great ideas, and we have implemented many, many of them. In uh, not too distant future, I hope to be sharing a draft for public comments and really look forward to continuing engagement. And over the next uh, year, we want to get to final as well as make sure that we are working with agencies on implementing those changes as quickly as possible. Third, I would highlight that since the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, we have been working hard with our agency partners on thinking about how to improve project level reporting. Today, uh, you can go to USA Spending and you can see a lot of the reporting that is required to provide oversight, but all of that reporting is at the award level. So you might imagine a state gets an award for a block grant and then that award gets divvied up to a bunch of projects. Today, you're not required to report at the project level. And so we have been working with our agency partners on the programs and the bipartisan infrastructure law to up that reporting to the project level. That has been a big body of work. We have uh, done a pilot. We are through our initial pilot stages and we are rolling that out uh, for all of the programs that have construction projects in the bipartisan infrastructure law and this year uh, are on track to share that information publicly. 
The last one I will highlight, which is certainly uh, by no means the least important and probably the only priority we could talk about for the entire time we are together because it covers so many of them. We issued M2319, which is our memorandum that we send out to departments and agencies which established the Council on Federal Financial Assistance. This is a big deal. That council is going to be a critical component in many of those items I just uh, mentioned. But really, at the end of the day, they will help us to ensure that agencies have the tools they need to deliver programs in an efficient, effective, and equitable manner, while also making sure that we are reducing administrative burden on applicants and recipients. Let's start with the beginning of the, of, the, of number one, as you talk about ensuring stewardship and, and looking at implementation. The joint review meetings, you said you've been through that. How many of you had? What are they like? Give me a sense of what you're hoping to come from those as these get going. We've heard over the years, uh, you know, different reviews that, that IT does, but maybe this is, I haven't heard the same thing as for financial management. These meetings, I'm not allowed to say I have a favorite of anything really, but they are hands down my favorite meetings that I get to host uh, for sure. They started shortly after passage of the American Rescue Plan. So back in March of 2021, quite frankly, what was happening was we here at ONB were hearing one set of facts from program staff. The White House might be hearing something similar, but slightly different on the implementation team. We were then coordinating with the oversight community to understand some of the government-wide uh, problems and hearing a third similar but slightly different version of what was going on. And we realized the only way to get to the bottom of the problem was to have everyone in one virtual room at the same time. And so that was the creation of these meetings. They started with uh, one program, and I have since then participated in more than 60 of them. We started again with the American Rescue Plan, and then we institutionalized it as part of an MMO and have since then implemented them for the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the Inflation and Reduction Act, and CHIPS, which I'm not going to try to spell out. But what do these meetings cover? Uh, we here in my team in OMB create a template of a series of the kinds of questions we want to explore together. So think about all of those things you just said that I didn't mention. What are your internal controls? How do you view risk for this particular program? When you think about reporting, what is it going to look like? When are we going to get it? What are the kinds of oversight reports you are looking to ask your recipients to provide? We are also asking big questions like, what are the legislative requirements for this program? How are they different from before? They are meant to be prompts. They are meant to be a conversation. And so we work with the program team to work through those questions. And if there are areas that would benefit from hearing from the IG, from the White House, from the agency leadership, we highlight those in the meeting and they really are a discussion. It's not about preclearance. It's not about not having an audit on the program. It's about learning from the expertise that exists inside your agency and across the government. And I will tell you, it works. It happens live. I have seen agencies think about the decisions they are making and how they're going to implement their program in a different way at the end of the hour. These meetings, because of all of the high-level officials that participate, tend to be at the end of the day, often uh, at the time when people don't have places to go afterwards except home. So many of them go long, and we continue the discussion. And I will tell you, the best meetings are just that. 
People are coming off mute, asking questions. I've had agencies pull up spreadsheets live, showing their IG in the meeting, like, oh, well, this is the data we're looking at and sharing information with each other. That is when they are at their best, when they really are a discussion. How are you collecting the best practices, the lessons learned? How are you ensuring that whatever, whenever you do one of these meetings, you can share that information to others on the CFO council and more broadly to other program folks? Because you know, one of the big challenges you mentioned was obviously payment integrity, uh, improper payments. And we've seen you know, during the pandemic, the skyrocketing of improper payments. It's now come back down. But there's a big push from this administration and from the agencies, plus from the oversight community on reducing fraud. What, what else can we do to reduce fraud? And I imagine part of these review meetings also address that, that challenge. Absolutely. And that sharing is happening in a number of ways, both formal and informal, right? So we have folks that are taking notes during those conversations. And I am very actively ensuring that as the head of the CFO council, I am sharing with that group. I also, as soon as my new grants council stands up, will be making sure that there is a mechanism to get back to that council to share the lessons learned there. But I would also say that fraud and payment integrity symposium that I highlighted at the top is another area where we are making sure the information is flowing in both directions. So we are often hearing from one program or one situation, and then we're saying that worked or GAO has identified a process that is, you know, the gold standard. We are then taking it to the fraud symposium and having hands-on practical ways for agencies to engage and really take some of those best practices and think about how their program should be applying it. I will also say uh, another important body of work that is underway right now is with the Joint Financial Management um, Initiative with GAO, Treasury, ONB, and OPM. We are a joint cooperative that work together on a number of cross-cutting issues, and we as a group have committed to prioritizing the prevention of fraud, waste, and abuse, and we are working on a multi-year plan where we will leverage all of our uh, best practices across our organizations to help agencies tackle that really important issue. The, the priority you, you listed fourth, not your fourth priority, but the priority you listed fourth, which is the new Council on Financial Federal Financial Assistance. You had given us a little bit of a heads up during the AGA meeting, and then you, got, you all at OMB re released the policy. Where is it today in terms of standing up? Have you had the first meeting or when is the first meeting? And what are some of those initial priority items, agenda items for the council? One of the things that this council is going to do is create a group of agency leaders that can speak on behalf of their the entirety of their agency and the way they think about federal financial assistance. Today, I will tell you, I do not know before these individuals were identified who to go to in every instance, right? It was one of the problems we were trying to solve. I knew who were running uh, big programs or who was doing certain kinds of work, but I didn't know who had the authority to speak on behalf of some agencies. Well, that all has changed. Each agency has identified their senior accountable official. Um, I am happy to announce that Dale Bell at HHS will be the co-chair representing HHS. In the memo, we designated HHS as the first co-chair, and they have chosen Dale Bell, who runs their Office of Grants. And Dale and I right now, actually I've had a few of them today, are meeting with all of our newly appointed uh, senior accountable officials to hear from them what they want to accomplish from this council. And uh, really, really look forward to getting the ground running, but most importantly, getting it right. There are a number of councils that the federal government has stood up and we need to learn the lessons from those councils. And we are taking that seriously. 
we want to make sure we are setting up this council for future success by creating the right processes up front and making sure that we are communicating not only appropriately internal to government, but also external. And getting that right is going to take us a little bit of time, but I have no doubt that we have found the right people to do that. Generally speaking, the senior accountable officials fall into the grant-making category, meaning people who are head of grants or more CFOs or... I have been very surprised. Some of them come from the procurement shops. There are a number of agencies where their senior accountable officials sit inside the procurement arm because they think about financial assistance and procurement in much the same way. There are other agencies where the CFO council, the CFO shop is where they are tapping into. One of the first products I hope this council will help me create is that cheat sheet of how does this work at every single agency and uh what are the programs that they are supporting and how um, do they function internally? Because I think that'll be a really helpful uh, artifact to have and be able to share with folks. As we talk about uh, grants management and federal financial assistance, one of the things that I want to make sure we hit upon is the GREAT Act. I think at the AGA event, you mentioned potentially new guidance coming uh, or updated guidance around the GREAT Act. What can you tell us about that? I know it's all pre-decisional until it's out. So Give me a little sense of, of what should agencies be on the lookout for. Sure. So I can't get into what's going to be in the guidance or when it's going to happen, but I can tell you that we are learning a lot from that project level reporting project I told you about with the bipartisan infrastructure law. One of the reasons why we decided to go down that route with the bipartisan infrastructure law is we needed to know a lot more about what agencies today can and should be collecting before we could take the next round at Great Act. So Great Act really requires agencies to work together to ask recipients the same questions in the same way. So that way, maybe there's a future where a recipient doesn't have to report the same information 10 times to 10 different programs in slightly different, albeit very annoying ways. And so in order to get that right, we need to have the right set of information that every agency is asking. It's not going to always be perfect. There's not going to be great. There's not going to be 100% alignment, but there should be a core. These are the 10 elements that every program, if it's this type of program, should be collecting. But more important to that than that, the, this is the way that agencies should be asking the question or data standards, right? When you ask for an address, that address should be no more than 100 characters or the zip code needs to be zip code plus four. We made a lot of progress on that previously on the GREAT Act, but we didn't finish that work. Um, our last guidance that went out identified the data elements that should be at the core, but we didn't identify exactly how agencies should be answering those questions in all the same way. That's the next round of data at Great Act, right? It's making sure that we are saying as a government, when we ask you for your address, we are going to ask for it the same way every way, every time, um, and making sure that all of our forms are following that. So we're hard at work. Uh, we're working with HHS on that. And again, uh, that Grants Council is really going to help us because there are some that are uh, not going to be easy to come up with one uh, standard because agencies have been asking those questions in very different ways for a really long time. I appreciate you got in front of my question of when and what should we look out for. If you, even if you told me the fall or the winter, I know OMB time means summer, spring. So these things take a while. So obviously a lot of folks looking at it because I think folks don't understand that the government spends more on grants than they actually do on procurement. We think procurement's the biggest one, but I think it's it's well over a trillion dollars in grants, if I if I remember that correctly. Yeah. So when we look, especially at last year and the last couple of years before that, we have eclipsed the one trillion dollar mark in federal financial assistance. 
I will tell you, um, a lot of people not only think that procurement is a bigger portion of the pie, but they also inappropriately think that grants are just like procurement and should be exactly equal. And we should have a FAR, which is the Federal Acquisition Regulation. And while I agree, we can and should be finding ways where we can overlap and be the same, federal financial assistance is fundamentally different from, from procurement. Each program has its own underlying statutory authorities, and that is meaningful, and we need to make sure that we are not overcorrecting either. So what this council is gonna help us do is identify exactly how much we overlap and find those similarities, but I wouldn't want anyone to think that what this is going to do is create the equivalent of where they've been able to land in the procurement space. I think it's important also to connect some dots around the OFFM and the work you do. You work very closely with the Office of the Chief Information Officer, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, and probably some of the, uh, obviously, the budget side of, of OMB. Maybe discuss how all these initiatives also fit into some of the work either being done through OFPP, through OCIO, or just more generally with OMB. How do the, the, those big management offices help push that ball up the hill? A little bit about my background. Uh, before I became the deputy controller, I was on the budget team in ONB. And so when I came to OFFM, it was a priority for me to make sure that we were partnering closely with our budget colleagues and ensuring that the management team was speaking as one voice. I am happy to report we couldn't be more synced on the management team. While I haven't been here for more than a few years, I can assure you I am meeting with my management team colleagues all of the time. Just earlier today, on one of the topics you raised earlier, Jason, we were all in a room talking about shared services and across our councils and our areas where we needed to go and how we needed to get that done. That conversation couldn't have happened if at the leadership level across our offices, we weren't uh, completely aligned. Another really important area uh, to highlight is the Made in America office. Our newest partner on the management team who has joined us during uh, this administration. I work so closely with Livia and her team. Uh, as you may know, they just updated their guidance in the uniform guidance. That was in lockstep together. Uh, it, while it might be OFFM's guidance, it was absolutely in partnership with our Made in America office. So there are so many initiatives I could ask, add. And so if we could have this whole conversation just about cross-cutting initiatives that we are working tightly uh, across the management teams on for sure. Share services was not necessarily one of your the priorities you mentioned in the front end. I know that there's a big push for the QSMOs, my favorite acronym in government. Anything you can share about where this is heading next? I know it's been a big priority for OMB over the last decade plus to modernize federal financial management systems. Uh, anything that you should look out for over the next year? Sure. Making sure that we are providing the federal enterprise with the tools they need once that can be shared is always going to be a priority of every OFFM leader, as well as my colleagues across the board. We don't want agencies paying multiple times for the same thing. Um, I will tell you that in the spaces where I have most uh, insight, which would be the QSMO, and I love that you pronounced that correctly. Most people don't. They say QUISMO. There's all sorts of versions. Um, that is the QSMO at Treasury, as well as the Grants Management QSMO. And in both of those areas, we have a lot coming down the pike. Treasury is the furthest along of all of the marketplaces uh, by far. And I have no doubt that over the next year, they will continue to add more suppliers. With the grants QSMO, we are really going to be looking to them to lead on this great act work, as well as working with the standards leads to make sure that they have a marketplace that is ready to make available solutions that meet those standards. So there is a lot of exciting work coming down 
uh, the pike. And I didn't mention it as a singular priority because it really cuts across all of the initiatives that we are working on and it supports each of them uh, in a different way. Deidre Harrison is the Deputy Controller in the Office of Management and Budget. To hear her full conversation with Jason Miller, go to federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still ahead on Federal News Network, some worrisome signs for security clearance processing times. That's next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs 
and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, 
I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, 
somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.